terror in the land. All the shootings, all the taking of life, all the troubled people. A supermarket in Buffalo, a school in Texas, a church in Iowa and California, a hospital in Tulsa. The horror is everywhere you turn. All different types of people are suffering in America right now. African Americans, Hispanics, children, medical professionals, average churchgoers. We can talk about the Second Amendment and gun control, but what this really comes down to is sin. People taking the lives of the innocent, planning attacks, murdering. Today is also the anniversary of D-Day. Allied forces storming the beaches of France with the final invasion of Nazi Germany. It seems that evil, pain, and death have flooded our fallen planet, but it will not always be this way. Another flood is coming. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris sharing the great story that's all about Jesus, and we're launching a new series this week called A Royal Sacrifice. By God's grace, not all news is bad news. I hope you caught some of the special events from the United Kingdom this past weekend as they celebrated Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne and 96 years on the earth. The Platinum Jubilee culminated with a long four-day weekend. Queen Elizabeth is still the longest reigning monarch in the UK history. What makes celebrating the Queen so special for me as an American is knowing that the Queen loves Jesus. She has a vibrant faith in Him and has chosen to serve her nation as Christ serves His church. And Catherine Butcher wrote a new book that brings the Queen's faith to light. She's someone who seems to want to feed her faith in private worship, in public worship, and in in her personal Bible reading because you don't have a, a well-read copy of the Bible by your bed unless you're the person reading it. That's Catherine Butcher. She's written a new book called Our Faithful Queen, 70 Years of Faith and Service. She'll join us in a moment to tell us more about the Queen. And after we meet up with her, we're going to begin looking at the unique life of Queen Esther. And of course, we're examining this unique teaching in light of Queen Elizabeth's historic reign. She's loved, she's admired by so many around the world, and I think it's because of her leadership style. She serves, she loves her nation, because Jesus loved and served her first. And that's why I find this book that we now have in our warehouse called Our Faithful Queen. It's very refreshing to hold in your hand and to see the pictures and to also just read the prayers that she's prayed through the years. And she authentically shares her faith with the world in action and through words. And after this program, I'd like you to have a copy of this most amazing book. I think it will not only just talk to you about the Queen's faith in Christ Jesus, it will inspire you to more boldly proclaim Christ as you live out your faith and serve those in your family, church, workplace, and the world. And remember, you can't find this book on Amazon or at your local bookstore in North America. We had it shipped directly to us from the United Kingdom. So after this program, you just need to call 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN, or 
Meet up with us online at haventoday.org, haventoday.org. And while you're there, check out our new blog called 10 Surprising Things the Queen Says About Jesus. I know you'll be encouraged when you read it. And now let's open the program with Rend Collective and Graham Kendrick and his famous song, a hymn, The Servant King. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory lay, not to be served, but to serve, and give your life that we This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. There Heavy load he chose to bear. His heart with sorrow was sore. Yet not my will, but yours, he said. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now. The Servant King, written by Graham Kendrick, here on this Haven Today in a program called A Royal Sacrifice. I'm Charles Morris. All last week, we were talking with Catherine Butcher, the author of this new book, Our Faithful Queen, and I asked Catherine to share how the Queen has balanced her public image with all the formality with her private faith as a Christian. Yes, the cameras are always there. I, I've been to various palaces i'm a bit of a royal watcher so i've been to sandringham when the queen is staying at sandringham and comes to sunday and she attends church there aren't many cameras there but there are always some but she's there she's going to church and she's having a conversation with the vicar on his way out and she's inviting him back for sunday lunch and then on occasions when other people would perhaps not think of having a Christian service, for example, on the anniversary of her father's death, it was a regular practice for her mother, Princess Margaret and the Queen to have communion together in a private ceremony uh, in Sandringham to mark the, the day that he had died. And most of us wouldn't have chosen to have 
a Christian service as a, a way of remembering our much-loved mm. father. And yet she chose mm. to. And there are no mm. cameras. And people mm. don't know about that, apart from those people who read biographies assiduously like I do. Um, mm. So, yes, there's a formality because she has to attend formal services. And because of her age, she's someone who loves the Book of Common Prayer and the authorised version of the Bible, which is these and those language. And she likes the old hymns rather than perhaps the more contemporary ones. But she said to watch uh we have a program here in the uk called songs of praise every sunday and mm -hmm. it's a uh, it's about 60 years old it's been going for all that that time and it includes lots of hymns and testimonies from around the country and it's not on primetime tv anymore and yet the queen said to watch that regularly so she's someone who seems to want to feed her faith in private worship in public worship and in in her personal Bible reading, because you don't have a, a well-read copy of the Bible by your bed unless you're the person reading it. Thank you, Catherine Butcher, for joining us again on the program. You're listening to Haven Today. We're calling the program A Royal Sacrifice. Now let's turn to God's Word, the Old Testament, and the story of another faithful queen. The Book of Esther was written in part to show us that what very often looks like good luck and what looks like Bad luck is really neither. What happens in your life is because the invisible God is active. We can't see him, but he is at work in our visible world. So even though God is not explicitly mentioned in Esther, there are places throughout the book where he is there. And one of them is Mordecai's question to Esther. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. The focus there is passive, isn't it? Esther had been raised up. She had been put in this position. The question we need to ask is, by whom? Who put her there? And there we see the Lord working salvation for his people behind the scenes and through the courageous work of this Jewish woman in exile, Esther. Let's read from the book of Esther. I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, at that time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. That's the first few verses of the book of Esther. Chapter 1 sort of sets the stage, setting the scene. I want you to notice first the presence of something. Second, I want you to notice the absence of something. 
And in both cases, the presence and the absence are significant. Finally, I want you to notice something that's different in this story. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at something present, something absent, and something different. First, what's present here? What does the author want us to see? What is he putting in front of our faces? It's pretty clear. You can't miss the pomp and the power and the wealth of this man Xerxes and his Persian Empire. One of the hallmarks of Hebrew history writing is that Hebrew historians were frustratingly spare on details. They almost give you nothing. Very seldom do you get any indication of the color of what they're wearing or the chairs they're sitting on. And yet here, we have amazing detail. In fact, the only place where you get detail that's like this is in the descriptions of the temple and the tabernacle. It's really remarkable that you get this kind of detail. And it's clearly the author wants us to focus on the lavish wealth, the power of Xerxes in Persia beyond the gold and silver couches. Anytime a biblical author is doing anything different that stands out, we better stop and ask why. What's going on here? Why is the author of Esther breaking form here and giving us all this detail when he typically wouldn't? The answer is, he's writing satire. Yes, satire. It's not inaccurate. It's satire. He's satirizing the wealth and power of Xerxes. What he's doing is he's chuckling at it, and he wants us to chuckle too. That's sort of what's going on here, and I think it's going on here for two reasons. First, there are theological reasons. The Jews already had scriptures that had taught them and prepared them to be suspicious of people who trusted in their wealth. An example, Psalm 49 says, Why should I fear those who trust in their wealth and boast in their great riches? Man, despite his riches, does not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers, like sheep, They are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. Second reason I think this is satire is historical. Interestingly, we know from non-biblical historical sources that in that year, Xerxes called for a war council, a large war council, to begin preparations for an attack against Greece. Just two years later, after this war council, Xerxes launched his attack against Greece, and he lost, by the way. He was humiliated, and a lot of the wealth and the power that you see on display here were gone. See, people who knew the history would read this and go, okay, it sounds impressive, but this is sort of a flash in the pan. This is temporary. This isn't going to last too long. In a couple of years, he's going to get his lunch handed to him, and a lot of this wealth is going to go away. Humans reign, but they reign for a short time. God reigns forever. What's the point? How do we bring this home? in the 21st century. I think we need to look at this and focus on this wealth and power, see the satire of it, and recognize the author isn't denying the reality of it, the reality of wealth and the political power that goes with wealth, but he is reminding you and me to not take it too seriously. To get some perspective, I think that's a wise lesson for both of us today, don't you? As Christians, it seems to me we tend to go out to the extremes. We tend to overly fear political power today when it seems to be going against us. But on the other hand, as Christians, we tend to overly prize political power when it seems to be for us. But it doesn't ultimately deliver on what it promises. Clearly, it didn't buy Xerxes' domestic happiness. It didn't even ensure that he got what he wanted. Just how much is your happiness today and your sense of self 
tied into either having something or wanting something. Having a position or wanting a position that allows you more power. I know there are marriages that are strained because there's dissatisfaction with what's owned. There's always that wish for more, right? The book of Esther is reminding us where real power lies. It doesn't lie in the obvious places. It doesn't lie in the places where our culture says it does. Keep it in perspective. Wealth is not a bad thing. Political power is not a bad thing. But it's not the ultimate thing either. And it doesn't really ultimately deliver what you and I need and what you and I are looking for. So we've talked about what's present in the story. But that leads to the second thing, what's absent in the story. If you know the story, you know the two central human figures in this historical event are Esther and her uncle Mordecai, not King Xerxes. Yet we're a full chapter into the book, and Esther and Mordecai haven't even appeared. There's no mention of them. As we read on, what's happening here in the court of Xerxes, which is a long way from where Esther is. Esther, a young Jewish woman, foreigner in an empire that's foreign to her, She's not connected at all to the royal court. She probably doesn't care what's going on in the royal court. And she probably has no way of knowing what's going on with Xerxes and his cabinet and his wife. And yet, what's happening here, we know has direct impact on Esther and Mordecai's life. And she has no idea yet. If you could jump into history at this point in time and go to Esther and say, where do you see yourself going in the next two years? What's your plan in life? I guarantee you she'd get it wrong. And so would her uncle Mordecai. But after reading the whole book of Esther, you can see this is all setting us up. It's a setup. It's laying the runway for Esther's entrance into history and ascendancy into this now vacant throne. We're confronted with a tension that we're going to be confronted with throughout Esther. On the one hand, all of this is explainable as just human conduct. This is just humans going about their business, exercising their will, making decisions. There's nothing supernatural going on here, nothing miraculous going on. We're just making moves and acting according to our will. But the question is, is it just random? Is it just mere coincidence? Is it just luck that these events are playing out in such a way that they're opening up a door for Esther? It's clear if you sit down and read the book cover to cover, the author's answer is no. There's no such thing as a coincidence in a divinely governed universe. The other one who is absent at this point is the true hero of this story, the true central character in history, and that's the Lord. I want you to rest here for a moment, because it really is encouraging. What this very first chapter of Esther is telling us is that God is working out his plan for you and all of its details, just like he was working out the plan for Esther. He's not just working the details of your life. He's working the details of every other person who will impact you, whether you know that person or not. It's amazing. God is active in the lives of unbelievers in a pagan empire, an explicitly pagan empire that doesn't recognize the God of the Bible. And he's active not just in their wise and good decisions. He's active in their sin, in their irrational decisions, in their stupid moves, God is active, putting into action his perfect plan for Esther. What I want you to know is he is even now doing the same thing for you. And that's because he's sovereign. There's no luck in our universe, good or bad. You will not ever be in some place. You will not ever face a situation that has not been ordained for you first by a loving Heavenly Father. 
There's a lot of mystery here. As I speak, I know there are many of us who are in situations that are terrible, they're hard, and they may go on for a very long time. There's a mystery here. I don't know how God is going to use a specific event or situation in your life, especially those in which we can't see any possible good. But you need to know, when we're upside down in our houses, when we're unemployed, when our marriages are strained, when our kids are walking away from the faith, when we're struggling with health issues, you need to know this truth. We know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't understand it, but I stand on it. Esther is just a picture of Romans 8.28 lived out. It's a moving story of God working out Romans 8.28 in a life. Take courage. Take courage. Our God is more sovereign than we appreciate and can imagine. That's what's present. That's what's absent. Finally, you know, if you're a Christian, you can't help but read Esther through the lens of the New Testament. In fact, you should do that. As Christians, on this side of the cross, we should and must read these Old Testament passages through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of what we know of God and how he has revealed himself to us through Jesus. Over and over again in Esther, we're going to be confronted with an opportunity to compare and contrast the differences between the kingdom of God and the empire of Xerxes. See, if you're a Christian, you recognize that. Yes, you live maybe in the U.S. or in Canada. You're a citizen of a country, maybe a state or a province, but you're also a subject in the kingdom of God. Our preeminent allegiance is to that kingdom. And this book invites us at every turn to compare and contrast the kingdom we belong to, the kingdom of God to the empire of Xerxes. In some ways, they're alike. Both include absolute monarchs. We especially as Americans are prone to equate royal power with selfish domination, but I think it's one of the reasons why some of us in our culture resist Christianity. We resist the idea of a king in a kingdom. I think we're almost culturally and historically conditioned to resist kings. Well, it's true that some royal power is equated with selfish domination. It certainly is with Xerxes. Could the difference between Xerxes and the Lord be any more pronounced? Clearly, Xerxes is about domination. His empire grows and is held together by force, by fear. But how does God come to us? He comes to us quietly. He comes to us without drama. He comes to us as a servant. Jesus is no less than the Creator coming to earth in the flesh. All things were made by him and through him and for him. He demonstrated his love by entering our story as a human being, living our life, but living it perfectly, and then dying in our place, taking divine punishment that should be ours. Justice demands punishment. And Jesus stood between us and that punishment, and he took it on himself. While you and I were still enemies, Paul says Jesus died for us. He's demonstrated his love for us. He has remembered his people. He has remembered his children, and he's remembered his promises. This is the kind of God we can renew our allegiance in. This is Almighty God who will cause us to love him and to love others in a new and fresh way as we consider what he did for us. Why do we love and serve others? Because he first loved us and served us. Queen Esther, in a small way, modeled what King Jesus would one day do for us. 
He truly was the servant king. Haven today, and our first day in a series called A Royal Sacrifice. And that's the instrumental version of The Servant King by Graham Kendrick. That hymn sums up who Jesus is for Christians. And it reminds me that Jesus was and is not just a role model for Queen Elizabeth, but it's her Lord and Savior. I think that's why she's been so open about her faith in Christ. And I think she's done quite a job in sharing her faith with millions in her nation through both words and deeds. The legacy she wants to leave is the same that we should all aspire to. I am someone who served Jesus because he served me first. And when you read this new book just out called Our Faithful Queen, 70 Years of Faith and Service, you're going to see her story unfold. This book that's laid out like a beautiful magazine is filled with quotes, prayers, and speeches that show her vibrant faith in Jesus. I'm certain your faith will be encouraged by this insider look at the faith of the Queen. And a little note, Our Faithful Queen can't be found on Amazon or at your local bookstore in North America. We have a special order that came directly from the UK. You need to call us right now for your copy. Our number to call is 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN. Or check out some of the sample pages from A Faithful Queen. See for yourself how beautifully laid out the pages are, and then make your gift at haventoday.org, haventoday.org. And while you're there, take a listen to the extended interview we did with the author of Our Faithful Queen on our Great Stories podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Won't you come back again tomorrow when again we get to share together the great story that's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries, inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. How did it come to this? David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, had sinned horribly. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he deceptively kept the affair secret when she got pregnant. He had her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield, a soldier who had fought for him time and again. Psalm 51 is the record of David's heartfelt repentance for his sin against God. And what did he ask his Lord to do? Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You, who are God and my Savior. The king knew he needed to be right in God's sight. And through the work of Jesus, all who call on the name of the Lord are righteous in his sight. Get Anchor devotional in print monthly. Visit getanchor.com.